One of the words that we don't like much is the word empty, especially when we go hop in the car and we're in a hurry to go somewhere and we look down at the gas needle and it is laying on empty. Or perhaps when you've poured that bowl of cereal, some of you know this, you pour your bowl of cereal, you go to the refrigerator to grab the milk and you find out that the container is empty. Now, I don't know who put it in there that way. But there it is. Or maybe, even worse, is when you pull up to the ATM, put your card in, only to discover that your account is empty. Empty is not a good thing in those situations. On Wednesday night, on Wednesday night, Wednesday evening, we've got kids who will be hunting around for plastic eggs. Just imagine the joy in their hearts if they opened them to find that they were empty. It would not be cool. We'd have lots of tears, lots of stomping of feet, and lots of parents going, hey, what are you trying to pull? Empty is just not one of the best words for us. Last week, we considered the life of Solomon. King Solomon, as he wrote in Ecclesiastes about all the things that he had tried in life, and I won't go through the whole list, but you remember He said he tried, you know, he had all the money, he had built all these things, he had all these projects going on. In other words, he said, I denied myself nothing. And then what was his conclusion? It's all empty. It's like chasing after the wind. When I finally got all those things that I thought would bring me satisfaction, I discovered they brought me no satisfaction at all. And what we said at the end of that message, some of you went away depressed. You just said, oh, man, that's, you're waiting for the Kool-Aid to be passed out. But if you did, you missed the whole point. Because the point was this. Everything the world promises you is something is ultimately going to end up being nothing. But Jesus invites you to follow him. In fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. So do not worry, saying, what will I eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. In other words, what he said is, listen, if you're in hot pursuit after those things that you think are going to bring you satisfaction, they are going to disappoint you. So get your priorities right. Follow me. Seek the kingdom. Seek righteousness. And trust God to take care of those other things. This morning we continue this message called Empty, but we're going to change gears a little bit, and we're going to focus on a guy not named Solomon, but on a guy named Habakkuk. Now, obviously, I don't know of any of you who've named your kids that, probably not on the top of the list of baby names, Habakkuk. But Habakkuk was a prophet, and he lived back in, oh, 626 to 605 B.C., which is a long time ago. But in order to help you understand what he's, we're going to read from him in just a few minutes, you need to get a little bit of understanding of what was going on in the culture, in that territory, in that area at that time. And so let me give you just a brief, brief, brief history. Nations kind of rose and fell, and one of the nations that was very, very prominent 
back in the 800s and 700s BC was a nation called Assyria. It was a huge empire, capital being Nineveh. You may remember that from the story of Jonah. You may remember that. And so Assyria, huge empire. And they stretched out and they were a warring people and they went out and they expanded their territory and conquered people and tore down cities and they did all this. One of the cities that they defeated was the northern kingdom of Israel. And they went in and they literally ultimately and, and completely defeated that city and they took the leading citizens, anybody who was educated, anybody who had money, anybody who had influence, anybody who was anybody... They took them and they they carried them off into exile and they just scattered them out throughout the rest of the empire. They didn't let them group together. They just scattered them out. And so really, the northern kingdom never rebuilt itself. There was never a coming back together as happened with the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, they were, the Assyrians were the big, big dogs on the block at that point. But they began to wane a little bit. And there was this other little nation down in northern Africa called Egypt. You may be familiar with that. Egypt was always one of those that would rise and fall and rise and fall. Well, Egypt saw that Assyria was losing ground. And so the Egyptians, they, got, they started feeling a little big of themselves. And they started going out and exploring and probing. And they'd win a few battles here and there. And they actually began to grow their empire once again. And one of the nations that they attacked was Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. Now, they didn't go in and utterly destroy it, but they had enough influence, they actually set up a puppet king in Jerusalem. And so now Egypt's feeling pretty, pretty tough. We can do this. But what they didn't know was this a little nation over here called Babylon. And Babylon was beginning to grow and expand. And they became a huge, huge, huge world power. King Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you remember him, the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Babylon, huge, huge. And so they came in and Egypt decided they were going to fight. They lost. And so Babylon came in and they, they began to sway influence over Jerusalem. Matter of fact, they put in their puppet king. But the Jews were always kind of tough to manage. And so they became rebellious and wanted to throw off the yoke of Babylon. And so eventually the Babylonian army came in. And in 589 B.C., they came in and literally wiped out the city of Jerusalem. I mean, took down the walls, tore down the temple, took all the gold and silver, took everything out of it, left it absolutely destitute. And they'd already done this once, but they came in twice. They took every leading citizen, anybody who could read, anybody had any education, anybody had any leadership, anybody had any business acumen, anybody who was anybody, they took them out of the city. They left only the poor and the destitute and and the, the people who couldn't read, the illiterate, left those folks there to try to manage for themselves completely unprotected. Now, here's the deal. Habakkuk is placed about 20 years before the Babylonians coming in and tearing the city down. And God gave Habakkuk this image. He told him, this is what's going to happen to your city. This is what's going to happen to your people. I, I, I can't imagine the burden of that kind of a message. To have to go out and to deliver that to your own people. Get ready, folks. If you think it's bad now, it's just going to get worse. There's a nation coming. 
And they're going to come in and utterly devastate everything. You may think you're doing okay right now, but look out. The other shoe is about to drop, and it's going to drop right on our heads. That was his message. Now, you may think, well, this is more the continuation of the depression we had last week. Why in the world are you bringing this up? Well, Habakkuk came to understand this. He didn't understand what God was doing because he said, why in the world would you use a, a nation that is, that is so wicked and so pagan as, as the Babylonians to come in and, and do this to us? Why would you do that? He didn't understand the ways of God, but this is what he did understand. He understood the character of God. He understood that no matter what his circumstances were, no matter what happened in the future, that God was still God and God was still good and that God had a plan even when he couldn't understand it, couldn't accept it. Now, God did do him the favor of saying, listen, don't worry about the Babylonians. I got, their, I got them. I'll take care of them in, their, in due time. But even though Habakkuk couldn't understand the ways of God, he trusted the heart of God. He trusted the character of of God. And so, now, with this concept in mind, we want to look at a short portion of the scripture that Habakkuk writes as he looks forward to this time. But it tells us a lot about his heart, and it tells us a lot about how we can face life when the bottom drops out. And so Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to look at just three verses here, verses 17, 18, and 19. Some of you may be familiar with this passage, some of you may not. But you need to know the context of it. There is a disaster coming. Destruction coming. It is sure and certain Judah has passed the point of no return. There is no hope. Not in what's going to happen. And this, this is what Habakkuk shares. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. That is God's personal name, the Lord. I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on the mountain's heights. And you go, Pastor, that's all well and good. But what in the world does that have to do with me? I mean, I, I understand what was going to happen in, in Judah and Jerusalem. I understand that. And I, but what does that have to do with me? There's some truths that we can learn here. And I'd like to share them with you because, quite honestly, they've been a help to me. And the first truth is this. Life has problems you didn't have to come here for that did you i mean you, you kind of knew that on your own life has problems and those problems are varied depending on where you are in life and what your circumstances are those problems might be a miscarriage or a failed marriage it might be the death of a parent or the death of a child it could be a diagnosis of cancer or watching Alzheimer's, the onset of Alzheimer's and a spouse. It may be getting fired. It may be losing your insurance, 
getting an eviction notice, standing in the ashes of what once was your home, watching your retirement savings disappear chunk after chunk after chunk. These are all very real things that people struggle with. These are problems that come in life. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Now look at this verse. I've underlined some things because I want you to focus. In this world there is what? Suffering. In Jesus, there is. Okay, let's try this again. Because, all right, share what you know with other people right now, okay? In this world, there is. In Jesus, there is. Wow. It's amazing what a little prepositional phrase will do, isn't it? In this world, Jesus said, there's going to be suffering. This is a fallen, broken, messed up world. In this world, there's going to be suffering. Some of it's intentional. There's some mean folks out there. Some of it's accidental. I was just reading, reading this morning in my devotional time, and Moses was uh, telling them what to do when, uh, in case of an accidental death. A man's out chopping down a tree, and the axe head flies off and kills his fellow out there working with him. What do you do with a situation like that? That's bad. You don't go, well, he must have been evil. He, he got what he deserved. No. He says sometimes bad things just, just happen because it's a messed up world in which we live. Okay, in this world, we're going to have suffering. Some of you know that firsthand. Some of you are experiencing it right now. But Jesus said in me, there's peace. In the midst of the suffering, there's peace. Folks, we've got to remember, when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he didn't build them a bridge over the Red Sea. He didn't transport them like Star Trek from one side to the other. He took them right through the middle of the sea. I can't imagine what that must have been like to have walls of water standing on both sides and to walk across on dry ground. To look and just to see water at any moment, it could come collapsing. And you know, you know, you know, this isn't supposed to happen. This, this, this defies the laws of gravity. This defies the laws of physics for this thing to be happening. And yet, here I am. Imagine the stories they had to tell to their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren of just what God could do. Sometimes God doesn't remove the problem but he's with you through the problem. In this world, you will have suffering. You will have suffering. Not you might, you will. But in Jesus, you can have peace. So that's the first truth. Life has problems. Second truth is this. Sometimes the bottom drops out. Okay, life's already got problems. But there are literally times when the bottom drops out of life. Some of you have known more than your fair share of trouble. Now, you'd honestly admit, if I had to compare my plight to that of third world countries, of places like Syria and Iran, trying to be a believer in those places, I'd admit that my problems probably don't stack up with theirs. I understand I have financial things that I'm struggling with, but you know, if I, these are first world problems, not third world problems. And I understand there's a difference between that, but, but your problems are still real. 
Just because they may not compare to what somebody else is enduring, it doesn't mean your problem isn't real. It is real. And when the bottom drops out, when the job disappears, when the market dries up, when that diagnosis comes in, when the bottom literally drops out, you feel hopeless. You really do. The, the multitude of options that you once had in life seem to have narrowed down so that all you have left is bad choices. You can't really look and say, okay, that's, that's good. You're just trying to pick which one is less bad. When the bottom drops out, there's, there's pain. When the bottom drops out, there's worry. When the bottom drops out, there's where there's pressure. And I'm trying to figure out what, what, could, be, what could be a picture of this And the image I got was falling down a well. And and that sense of helplessness and hopelessness, you're falling down the well, and all the time you're wondering, does this well even have a bottom? Well, I just keep on falling and keep on falling and keep on falling. Or is the bottom just a foot below me? Listen, neither one of those is good. Neither one of those gives, fills you with hope. But this is what it's like when the bottom drops out. You're just falling. And you can't get a grip and you can't stop it. And, and, and it just seems like the world is spiraling out of control. That was Habakkuk's situation. God said this is going to happen and it's not going to change. It's going to happen. And for some of us, you see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you know it's a train. More depression. Jimmy, can can, can you give us anything, anything that would lighten this burden you're laying on us right now? Well, let me move on to the next point, the next truth, and that's this. We have a choice how we respond when the bottom drops out. We have a choice how we respond when the bottom drops out. Don't miss this. Some people choose self-pity. Some people choose to crawl into a hole and pull a rock over them. Some people give up. Some people get angry. Some people play the blame game. Some people lash out at those who they think have treated them unfairly or those who didn't come to help them in a timely fashion. Some people abandon ship completely. I mean, they leave everything. They leave their families. They leave their children. They leave their town. And they just think that somehow, if I could just get away from all this, my problems would be solved. None of those is good. How did Habakkuk respond? How can we respond? And that leads us to our fourth truth. Our response is governed by what we truly believe is most real and most valuable. Let's not miss this because this is, this is where Habakkuk is leading us. Our response is governed by what we truly believe is most real and most valuable. So let me ask you a question. Do you view the character of God through the lens of your circumstances 
Or do you view your circumstances through the lens of your faith in God? Listen to this, because this is key. Do you view the character of God, who God is, what God's like by your circumstances? Or do you view your circumstances through the lens of your faith in God, his character, his goodness, his, his, his providence in your life? Where's your starting point? You can begin by looking at how dreadfully awful your circumstances are, or you can begin by looking at the revealed character of God. I want to suggest to you that you begin with the latter, not the former. If you begin by looking at your circumstances and you judge God based on your circumstances, you're going to come away with a warped picture of who God is. But if you begin with who God is, who you know him to be, who you trust him to be, who you rely on him to be, then you can look at your circumstances and say, as Habakkuk did, even though I can't figure any of this out, I'm still going to trust God. I'm still going to rely on him. Habakkuk did not live in a fantasy world. He was not an optimist. He was not a pessimist. He was a realist, but he's a realist who had a real faith. He knew that God was more real than his circumstances. Some of you need to know that this morning. God is more real than your circumstances. He knew that God would enable him to endure whatever God allowed in his life. He knew that God was good even when life wasn't so good. And he knew this about the bottom falling out. He knew that if the bottom fell out of his life, that the hands of God would catch him. And see, that's the difference. Some of you now feel like you're falling in that well and you can't stop the fall. You don't know whether there's a bottom or there isn't a bottom. But I want to encourage you to embrace the faith Habakkuk had. A faith that said, even if the bottom falls out, God's hands are beneath. And ultimately, he will catch me because I am his. Habakkuk trusted in the character of God even when he didn't understand the ways of God. Habakkuk's choice was simple. And he made a choice. He said, I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now, we tend to, we tend to read through this thing and, and we don't pay much attention to it, but you go back. What Habakkuk said was, listen, it was not just there's no food for today. There's no food in the foreseeable future. There is, the only thing I see in the future that God has revealed to me is destitution and desperation. That's it. That's the picture. And so what does he say in response to that? I'm going to make a choice. And my choice is, regardless of what my circumstances are, I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Some of you are at a point in your life where you've got to make a choice. And you're going to choose to give up, or you're going to choose to get bitter, or you're going to choose to become angry, or you're going to choose to chunk it all. 
to just throw your hands up and walk away. I want to tell you there's another choice. It's a choice to trust God in the middle of it and even then to rejoice. Let me tell you something I promise you happened here this morning. There's some people in this room who are hurting. They are hurting. And yet as they stood and they sang these songs of faith, they sang with all their hearts. They meant every word because they've made the choice. Regardless of what the circumstances are in my life, I will rejoice in God, my Savior. I'll do it. G. Campbell Morgan, that great Bible scholar and evangelist and pastor said, our joy is in proportion to our trust. Our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God. To know him is to trust him. To trust him is, is to triumph and excel. Now, I'm not, I wouldn't recommend to anybody get a tattoo. But if you just said, you know what, I've just got to have a tattoo, put that on you. What a great reminder. What a great reminder. Our joy, the joy we have in life is in direct proportion to our trust. And our trust is in direct proportion to who we know God to be. To know him is to trust him. To know him is to trust him. I won't ever forget as Jay jumped off the top of that rock as we were on Stone Mountain. He just threw himself with grin on his face with his arms stretched open wide for me to catch him. It's a good thing he didn't know a lot. Because I'm quite fallible. I could have dropped him. He could have hit that hard granite surface with me just standing there looking mouth open. But he jumped knowing his daddy would catch him. To know him, Jay would have said, is to trust him. He's my father. He'll catch me. He's your father in heaven. He'll catch you. God doesn't expect you always to be happy because of your circumstances, but he does give you cause to have joy in your circumstances. The Apostle Paul declared, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again because you probably didn't get it the first time. Rejoice. Now, always is a pretty big word, isn't it? It includes a lot of stuff. And that's why he goes on to say, I know both how to have a little and how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the secret. It's not about me. It's not about my ability. It's not about my wisdom. It's not about my courage. It's about him and what he can do through me. Trusting in the Lord looks beyond the, the emptiness of our circumstances and looks to the character of God. And I want to share with you a, a fairly lengthy portion of Scripture, but I want you to listen as we read through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. I want you to listen to what's being said here and try to, try to bring some of this 
to, to nest in your heart. He writes, now we have this treasure in clay jars. And when he means clay jars, he's talking about everyday dishes. And you and I are the everyday dishes. And we have this treasure of the gospel, this treasure of grace, this treasure of Christ that's contained just in everyday dishes. The last place anybody would look for the glory of God, and there it is. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that the extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are pressured in every way but are not crushed. We are perplexed. We can't understand it, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us but life in you. And since we have this same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore we speak. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that grace extended through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase in God's glory. Listen to this. Therefore, we do not give up. We do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolute, incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So that we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let me ask you a question. Did King Solomon focus on what was seen or what was unseen? On what is seen, what he could touch, what he could feel, what he could own. And where did that lead him? Empty. Chasing after the wind. When we focus on that, our tank will always be on empty. But there's another choice. We can focus on Christ and what he can do. This, what, is, what Paul's writing about here is real faith for a real world. This is not pie in the sky. Listen, follow Jesus and there'll never be any thorns on your roses. No. This is real life in real circumstances. Perhaps Romans eight twenty eight is one of those verses that you memorized. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, those who are called according to his purpose, all things, the good, the bad, and the otherwise. God is somehow working all that together for good. I want to wrap this up with the words of three faithful men who were well aware of what the king of Babylon could do because they saw it every day. The king of Babylon, unlike the president of the United States and any, uh, any president of the United States, the king of Babylon was the ultimate authority. What he said went. There was no, he didn't have to go ask anybody. He didn't have to go you know, get permission from anybody. There were no other houses of Congress he had to deal with. Whatever the king said, that was law, and nobody could question it. And so 
the king had come up with this idea because he had some guys that kind of told him, hey, we think this would be cool. And so he, he built this huge golden statue. And then he said, okay, here's the deal. Everybody, everybody has to come and bow down to this statue. And if you don't, you're going to die. Well, there were three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And everybody is just kneeling, and these three guys are still standing. And Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, listen, would you make sure those guys understand what I just said? And they said, oh, king, we understand. Let me tell you, you know, because he gave them this one last warning. You either bow or you get thrown into this fiery furnace where you're going to be ashes very soon. And he said, okay, I'll give you one more chance. And this is, this is what they said to him. Listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from it, from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. Listen, I believe God is able to deliver me from these circumstances. And I pray and I believe that God will. But even if he does not, I will not turn my back on my God. That is the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is the faith of the Apostle Paul. That is the faith of the prophet Habakkuk. And that is the faith to which we are called. And so let me take the words of Habakkuk and bring them into the 21st century. So the check doesn't come in the mail and there's no food in the fridge. Though my friends and family fail me and my prayers seem to go unanswered. Though there's no strength left in my body and no money left in my bank account, yet I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. And he makes me able to stand and enables me to walk even on shaky, uneven ground.